podcast, if you don't know what a podcast is, it's kind of like the modern technology of what we used to use as those little cassette tapes. Remember those cassette tapes? We used to have a tape ministry. We'd send out cassette tapes all over the nation. And it was uh, bulky and expensive and time-consuming, that sort of thing. Now we can do it with a push of a button. So on a podcast, on your smartphone, you hit podcast, look up Alpha Ministries, and you'll get this very message uh, on your phone at any time. So I thank Bill for that. He just drug me into the 21st century technologically. So. So let's get on with our study in Hebrews concerning your guilty conscience, okay? In Hebrews 9, we're moving forward in our study after looking at this astounding new covenant God has made with His people. New covenant is just simply a new contract, a new agreement, if you will. Now the old agreement, the old covenant, you're all real familiar with. You, you've heard me repeat it over and over again. And you grew up with it. In one form or another, you grew up under the old covenant. The old covenant, in the terms of the old covenant, was simply, if you behave yourself, God will bless you. If you don't behave yourself, God will curse you. By the, by the way, that's where uh, the issue of Santa Claus comes from. Did you know that? Old Covenant. You better watch out. You better not pout. You better not cry. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is watching you. And if you don't behave yourself, you won't get a present. Old Covenant mentality. We've all been conditioned by it. We've all been raised up under the Old Covenant. It's a covenant of rules and regulations. If you keep the rules, then you get blessed. If you don't keep the rules, then you get punished. Unfortunately, even though the old covenant was superseded by the new covenant over 2,000 years ago, people are still laboring under the old covenant. And by the way, that's where your guilty conscience comes from. Did you know that? Yeah. It comes from old covenant mentality that says there's something wrong with me. I haven't measured up to the standard. I've screwed up. I've blown it. I've failed. There's something wrong with me. I'm guilty. See, that sense of guilt is a strong motivation. There are three fleshly motivations that are counterfeits to the spiritual motivations we're to live by. The three are fear, guilt, and pride. These are strong fleshly motivations. Of the three, I'm going to suspect, this is just my opinion, but I suspect that guilt is the strongest motivator. Has anybody ever put a guilt trip on you? Have you ever had guilt laid on you to get you to do something or to get you to quit doing something? 
What they're trying to do is guilt you into conformity, obedience to what? The rules. Now, guilt is kind of a natural consequence that of the three motives I'm guessing, and this is just a, my own opinion. I don't have a lot of evidence to support this. But I'm guessing from my own experience that all of our fears that we have are related and somehow somehow related to trying to avoid guilt. We're afraid, for instance, of rejection, personal rejection. Why? Because we know deep down inside that we should be rejected. And pride is just our simple self-centered attempt to cover up our guilt, to cover up the fact that we are in fact guilty. So where does this come from? Your conscience is that faculty in your mind that actually weighs out what's right and what's wrong in your mind according to your conditioning. That conscience that you have that tells you that little inner voice that says, no, it's not right to do that. Oh yeah, that's right. No, that's wrong. That little inner voice called the conscience is what motivates us and what we feel and what we say and what we do on a daily basis. And we try to act in accordance to our conscience. But here's the problem with our conscience. Our conscience is screwed up. Did you know that? Yeah, it is. See, all of mankind, all of humanity has a guilty conscience by nature. By nature. All of humanity, because of the sin of Adam in the garden, has fallen under the guilt. Now, it was the purpose of God's law, which is the knowledge of good and evil. And remember, when Adam sinned in the garden, do you remember that tree that he ate the fruit of that he wasn't supposed to eat? you remember what that tree was called? The knowledge of what? Good and evil. The knowledge of the law. The knowledge of what's right and what's wrong. Now, how many of you have been doing fruit salads on that every day? Hmm? Of course you have. You've been trying to figure out naturally what is right so you can do it and what is wrong so you can quit doing it. That's the natural coping strategies of humanity, of the flesh. The problem is that coping strategy has never worked. So God, under the old covenant, that covenant that was given by Moses at Mount Sinai, the covenant of law, God laid it out for us. In those Ten Commandments and all of the statutes and ordinances around those Ten Commandments as well as, thankfully, the ceremonial law that he laid out as well. God, in the Old Covenant, laid it all out for this purpose that every single one of us would have 
a guilty conscience that the whole world may become guilty before him. Why would God want you to be guilty? Why would he want you to know you're guilty? Well, first of all, the obvious reason is because you are. That's true. Naturally, you are guilty. There are none righteous, no, not one. That's the truth. You're guilty. But more importantly, he lays it out so that we see the need we have because of our guilt for a Savior, for someone to do for us what we can't do for ourselves to remove that guilt. You see, our pride jumps up and says, okay, okay, I realize. I haven't kept the law. I understand that. That's okay. I'm guilty. But from now on, I'm going to turn over this new leaf and I'm going to behave myself. How long does that last? About as long as your New Year's resolutions, right? Yeah, from now on, I promise I'll never do it again. But invariably, you do it again. Because it doesn't work. See, you need a Savior. One that can do for you what you can't do for yourself. And that was the purpose of the Old Covenant, as Paul tells us in Romans. The purpose of the law was prove the whole world is guilty. To give us all a guilty conscience. Now, there are a lot of psychological ramifications to a guilty conscience. Okay? Not the least of which had to do with that fear I was talking about and that pride I was talking about. But our author in Hebrews now, after revealing to us the fantastic promises of the new covenant in which God does for us what we can't do for ourselves by writing His law on our hearts, putting it in our inward part, in the deepest part of our minds, and by speaking to us personally and individually, and by forgetting all of our sins and our trespasses, being merciful to our unrighteousness, God, as we studied last time, can only do that by making us brand new persons. Not the same old guilty persons we were, but brand new persons that have the righteousness of God, who never has sinned. Not sinning now, never will sin. So having declared that to us in chapter 8, our author in Hebrews is now going on in chapter 9 to talk specifically in the first 14 verses about this guilty conscience that we have. And God's way through the Old Covenant of dealing with His guilty people. See, all people are by nature guilty. We're born that way. Well, how does God deal with us? Under the Old Covenant, there was a very elaborate, precise way that God would actually meet with guilty people. That He would actually receive to Himself those people who are by nature guilty. And that's what our author is talking about here in the very first 14 verses of this chapter. So let me just read them together with you. 
and we'll come back and talk about the specific meaning. Beginning in verse 1, he says, Then verily the first covenant, that's an old covenant, had also ordinances of divine services and a worldly sanctuary. The divine services are the rituals that were performed, that God ordained, that were performed to deal with a guilty conscience. And the worldly sanctuary was that tabernacle or tent that Moses built in the wilderness. For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. So let's just stop here for a moment just to get you on the same page here because I know unless you're familiar with the Old Testament history of Israel, you're probably already lost. So let's just take a break here and see what he's talking about. He's talking about a special tent that was set up in the wilderness according to God's specification, his blueprints. He told Moses, I want you to build a special tent. And it was divided into two parts. The first part, called the holy place, contained a candlestick, an elaborate candelabra overlaid with gold, and a table of showbread, which actually had 12 loaves of unleavened bread made out of the finest flour, etc., that was placed upon it. That was in the holy place. Now it also had a curtain that separated that holy place from the next part of the tabernacle or the tent, which was called the Holy of Holies or the holiest or the most holy place. In that most holy place, there was the Ark of the Covenant, a chest, if you will, made out of acacia wood, overlaid with gold, both on the outside and the inside, having long staves or poles that the priest could carry it about with because it was kind of a, a mobile tabernacle, if you will. It was a tent that could be taken up, put up or taken down and moved. Inside of that chest or the Ark of the Covenant were three things. Number one, a golden pot of manna. Now, you might be asking, what's that? Which is the very meaning of manna. Did you know that? Manna is the Hebrew word for what's this? You see, when God fed the children of Israel miraculously, every day He gave them manna, which we think of in terms of a coriander type seed that could be ground into flour and you could make bread from it. And it appeared every morning. Well, can't you see 1.5 million Jews getting out of their tents in the morning, walking around saying, Mana, Mana, what's this? What's this? It was the food, the heavenly bread that God gave his people in the wilderness for 40 years. There was a pot of manna inside the chest, remembering that God is going to provide for your needs. 
there was a, a rod that Aaron had, a staff that he walked around with, that actually budded like an almond tree and had a bud on it and a flower. That was the proof that Aaron was the chosen priest by God. And then finally, there were the two tables of stones upon which were written the Ten Commandments. That was all inside this ark. On top of the ark, it was called the mercy seat. Another word for that, by the way, is propitiation, is where God's holiness and justice is satisfied. And above the mercy seat were two cherubim, angelic-like figures representing the glory of God that covered the mercy seat. So you all get the little picture here of the special tent with special furniture divided into two places. That's what he's talking about here. He's reminding his readers of the most holy place in particular. But then he goes on to say, in verse 5, when over at the cherubim of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. So he's saying, listen, I'm not going to give you an, an in-depth description and I'm not going to give you all of the symbolic meanings of this special tent and these special furniture. I can't do that right now. That's not my main point. But for all of us, we know he's talking about the tabernacle, specifically the holy place and the holy of holies with all its furnishings. Now, what was that for? That was to deal with a guilty conscience of God's people who were by nature guilty. All you have to do is go back and read the history of Israel and you'll find that these people were constantly screwing up. Constantly. While Moses was up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, they were all down at the bottom of the mountain violating every one of them. These people never once kept the law. And God had to deal with these people. More specifically, he had to deal with their guilty conscience. They knew they were guilty. And so God prepared a way for them through the ceremonial law to deal with their guilty conscience. And that was the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, and all the furnishings, and the rituals of service that the priests did. And that's what he's going to talk about next here. In verse six, 7, or I'm sorry, in verse 6, now when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle accomplishing the service of God. They went about their business. They had morning and evening sacrifices. They would shed the blood of sacrificial animals. They would take that blood in and mix with water and, and take a little sip, hyssop bunch and sprinkle that blood on the altar of incense before the Holy of Holies. They did that in the morning, they did that in the evening, and it all represented what God required to deal with a guilty conscience. And so the priests, there were a bunch of them, went back and to, back and to, out of the holy place every day. But then he goes on to say, but into the second, that's the holy of holies, went the high priest alone once every year. Just once a year. 
Not every day. Not without blood. Sacrificial blood. Which he offered for himself, his own guilty conscience, and for the errors of his people. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. This is called the Day of Atonement he's talking about. One day out of the year, the high priest will go through an elaborate sacrifice for himself, his own sins, and for the sins of his people, and he would enter into the Holy of Holies. Now this was a dangerous job. Because if he screwed up those sacrifices and he entered in, he would be killed immediately. And the presence of God would destroy him immediately. And so later on, according to history, they, they would tie a little rope around the, the high priest's leg, his ankle. And they put little bells on the bottom of his robe. So when he went into that special place, they could hear him in there, moving around. And if those bells quit ringing, he quit moving and he didn't come out, they could drag his butt out of there. So nobody had to go in and get him. This was a very special ritual that was performed once a year for the sins of the people that he's talking about this Day of Atonement. He goes on to explain in verse 9, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. Even though there were elaborate services offered elaborate rituals and when you go back and you read that ceremonial law in the first five books of the bible and you see the attention that was given to detail how everything had to be done exactly as god prescribed it even though that was done repeatedly over and over again it didn't do anything about your guilty conscience if anything it reinforced it because the whole time you were doing that, you were conscious of how you've blown it, how you've sinned, how you screwed up, how you're no good, how you are worthless. Because you're constantly thinking about yourself as being sinful. It's a sin consciousness or a guilty conscience. It did not make the people who were involved in it, perfect as concerning the conscience. It simply atoned for sin. What does atonement mean? It means it just covered it up like kitty litter. God let you slide. That's called mercy. That's why on the Ark of the Covenant, that top lid was called the mercy seat. Because there... God gave mercy to people who were guilty. And he did it to all the people once a year. Now, what's our author's point here? Follow along. 
It didn't make anything. All of these rituals didn't make anyone perfect as pertained to the conscience, which stood only in meats, foods, and drinks, and various washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. What's this time of reformation he's talking about? He's talking about that time that God would appoint in which He would do something about your guilty conscience. That was a time of reformation. Keep that in mind and read on with me now. But Christ, the Messiah of Israel, Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come. And all of chapter 7 told us about him becoming a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Of good things to come. Remember what a priest does. He is an intermediator between man and God. He's a high priest. Our high priest. But Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, tent, place of meeting with God. By a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. That is to say, not of this building. You see this new priest we have, this high priest, Jesus, priest after the order of Melchizedek, is doing His service, His work, concerning our sin consciousness, concerning our guilty conscience. He is doing His work, not on earth, in a physical constructed tent or building, no matter how elaborate. Solomon made the most elaborate temple you can imagine. But Jesus wasn't working there. Where is He working? In the heavenlies. In the very presence of God. Not on earth here, in His representative form, but in the very presence of God in heaven. He goes on to tell us, neither by the blood of goats and calves, those sacrificial animals, but by His own blood. He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a burnt heifer sprinkled the unclean, sanctified to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. So what's his point here? Everything that the Old Covenant represented symbolically, prefigured, if you will, concerning what God does about your guilty conscience, everything 
pointed to what Jesus would do as your Messiah. What He would do for you that you couldn't do for yourself. And what is it that He did? He offered Himself a sacrifice for you. He did not take the sacrificial blood of bulls and goats. He took His own blood into the very presence of God and the tabernacle in heaven and the holy place. And there He made an offering through the eternal Spirit for you. Now what we see from our side of that, what we are actually able to see historically was His offering of Himself on the cross of Calvary over 2,000 years ago. But remember, as we've been studying all along, two things happened on that cross. Number one, Jesus, the Son of God, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, offered Himself as a spotless sacrifice for all of humanity, for the guilt of all of humanity. He offered Himself a sacrifice to God. That in itself is amazing. And almost too hard to believe, too good to be true, isn't it? And hard to believe. Because right now, that guilt that's bubbling in you, that says, yeah, I've screwed up. No, I know I'm guilty. That guilt that's bubbling in you is getting layered over by pride right now. And you know what that pride is telling you? When God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be made sin for us, when God sacrificed His only begotten Son on the cross, it was not fair. Why should the innocent die a horrible death on the cross for all the guilty? That just ain't fair. This is not fair. So your human pride is bowing up right now against that saying, it ain't fair that God should kill His Son for everybody. We're the ones who are guilty. He wasn't. That ain't fair. And in your pride, you actually think you understand what is fair and what isn't fair. But it's that pride that keeps us from accepting that. It's that pride that keeps us from believing in that. That God said He did for us. To take care of our guilty conscience. So let me help you with it. And I don't mean to offend your pride. I want you to understand. I mean to shatter your pride. Not offend it. So let me help you understand this. Two things happened on the cross. Not only was Jesus crucified as a sacrifice for our sins, but secondly, you who are guilty in sins and trespasses, you who have never behaved yourself, you have always screwed up, you have been self-centered since your birth. He crucified with Christ. You died with Christ on the cross. 
It wasn't just Jesus dying on the cross. You died with Him. You were put to death with Him. You were buried with Him. Why? Because you are guilty. You have never kept the law of God. No matter how hard you've tried. No matter how many times you've promised. You have never kept the law of God. That person can't be rehabilitated. Did you know that? No, I can't. That, can't, that person can't turn over a new leaf and behave himself now. As so many Christians try to do. Oh no. That person has to be put to death. And God did that on the cross in Christ Jesus. Not only did Jesus die on the cross, but you, the person you've always thought of yourself as being, that person that's always had this sin consciousness, that person that's always had a guilty conscience, that person you've always thought of yourself as being was crucified with Him on the cross. Put to death once and for all. The Bible calls that the old man. The old man was put to death. Why? Because it could never be rehabilitated. It could never be accepted by God. It could never do what was right. And God, by His grace, for His mercy and great love, wherewith He loved us, quickened us together, made us alive together with Christ. And when Christ rose up from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we also were raised with Him, that we might walk in newness of life. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Christ and buried with Him. We are no longer that person. And a new man has been raised up to take his place. Who is created in Christ Jesus unto holiness and true righteousness. A new person who never has sinned and is not sinning now and never will sin has been raised up from the dead in Christ Jesus. And not only have you been raised up, you have been seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. God has made you a brand new person. That's how He purges your conscience from sin. You never did sin. You're not sinning now, you never will. He made you a brand new person. I know it's, that sounds somewhat preposterous. It sounds almost ridiculous. But I didn't make that up. It wasn't my idea. It was God's idea. And what our author of Hebrews has tried to get us to understand is that God has done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves 
through the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to purge our guilty conscience from sin. To make us brand new persons created in Christ. Now the question remains, are you going to believe that? Or are you going to blow it off as some kind of religious crap? The choice is yours. Paul's very specific about the results of that. He says, if you believe that you yourself are dead indeed unto sin and alive unto God, you'll be free from a guilty conscience. You'll have nothing to be ashamed of. Because you'll see yourself as a brand new person created in Christ Jesus. And that will remove, through that faith, it will remove that guilt and the guilty conscience you have and replace it with hope, a joyful, confident expectation about your future. And that hope will in turn release youth to actually love other people like Christ. The failure to believe that means you keep on going on the best you can with that guilty conscience, trying all your dead works to make yourself look good, trying to compare yourselves to others to prove that you're okay, trying to justify everything you say and do so that you know you're okay because you have not believed what God says He's done to make you okay in Christ Jesus. You see, the one is a life of joy and peace where you can be calm. You can relax. You don't have to run around proving that you are some great one. You can be who God made you to be. You can relax. Enjoy life and love other people. The other is you're going to be so preoccupied and so obsessed with making yourself okay that you're going to drive yourself crazy and drive everybody around you away from you. And your relationships will crumble. It's up to you. You want to believe what God says is true about you? Or are you going to go on in your unbelief? See, that choice we make daily. Going back to what we started out with this morning. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy for our unbelief and grace to help in time of need. Lord, help us all. Let's pray. Father, you're out as we come into your presence. I thank you and I praise you for all that you've done for us in your Son. For the way that you have purged our conscience from sin by creating us to be a brand new person. We ask you, Father, to give us the grace that we need to believe this, to understand it about ourselves, that we might have that hope to set us free be able to love one another even as you've loved us. Lord Jesus, we honor you and thank you 
your unspeakable sacrifice for all that you've done for us and we could not do for ourselves. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Appreciate you all being here. Thank you again for listening. If you want more access to Alpha Ministries teaching, you can like us on Facebook, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and visit our website. All times and dates for services and other events are on our website listed in the show notes. 